Hello and welcome to another episode of Coppola Idiots, a chronological dive through Nicolas Cage's illustrious film career. As always, I'm your host, Sam Williams, joined with my best buds. Hi, I'm Adam. And I am Milo. And today we are talking about the 1984 movie, The Cotton Club. So, uh, yeah, what'd you guys think? I thought it was pretty okay. I liked it. Yeah, it, it was it was a decent movie. It's a good movie. We're kind of back off of the cage train this week. He's a little bit more in the background, but uh, all in all, like it was a it was a fine film. What didn't like, you know, blow my tits off or anything. It was just pretty good. It sounds like pretty good is about is the greatest a movie can get in our podcast so far. <laughs> I we're. We've got a few years before the true greats start showing up here. Uh, uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I would... Think a, oh, go ahead, Adam. It was a really good movie. I just don't know that it was my cup of tea. I think that was part of it. It's like, I think other people would enjoy this more mm-hmm. for, like, the quality of film that it is. Yeah. Just didn't push all my buttons. But that, that's more of a personal problem with who I am. Yeah, I would agree. I'd also like had an issue of just constantly comparing, which I know you don't have this issue, Adam, but I was constantly comparing it to The Godfather the whole time. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. it's just not as good as The Godfather. <laughs> like, it, same director, same story writer, um, mm-hmm. and just a similar vibe for a lot of it, but just it's, it's not... <laughs> Um, no, it's, it's... I, I'm about to say there were some really great performances in here mm-hmm. um, and I feel like something we get to talk about this week we had some great uh, performances not directly related to acting we had some great musical and dance numbers in this that were yes, a exactly. lot of fun oh I mean one thing I wanted to ask before we get too far into it is which version of the movie did you guys watch I assume you guys watched the the encore which is the 2019 like re-edit remaster yeah yeah the remaster yeah. okay the, so we all watched the, the same was... one huh what so I didn't know I so I was trying to figure out what encore meant because that's what it, it pulled up on Pluto because it yeah. was a, a available for free yeah so Um, for the audience at home watching uh or listening along it's worth noting we are not sort of reviewing the original film in this case we're reviewing the remaster and the remaster focuses a lot more on uh the side characters particularly uh sandman and lila and it glosses over a lot of other stuff um or a couple other things i should say uh but Basically, this part adds a lot more of the of the club scenes, the music, the dance numbers that were originally cut from the first draft of the film. Mm-hmm. Really, that's interesting. Huh? Yes, basically. I, and that. Oh, go ahead. Uh. I think that actually makes a kind of a lot of sense to me because um, there were definite points in the movie that felt a little bit choppy. And didn't make sense to me part of that is they had some and we can talk about this more later but they had some weird time jumps where they jumped from the roaring 20s through the first few years of the great depression and sometimes a lot of things had changed but it didn't make sense for you know relationships to have been put on hold for that time period and then to spontaneously like Oh, we're picking up the plot between these characters again. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that more later. But, um, but yeah, I just want to make sure we'd we'd all watch the same one because yeah. doing the research I did, it sounds like you know there would have been some significant differences if one of us hadn't. So, but yeah, for anyone listening at home, for the record, we watched the Cotton Club Encore, as the remaster is called. So, I think that's usually the only way you can watch it now. I think if if you watch it on streaming, that's the only option. Um, and I think the modern dvd and blu-ray is also that version too so but um yeah before you get into the plot and stuff too much uh just wanted to give the quick you know movie facts so cotton club came out in 1984 uh so same year as racing with the moon um it had a huge budget of 58 million dollars i believe was the final budget which was 
well over uh, what they were supposed to spend on the movie. Um, and uh, come again? What was it? It was fifty-eight million. Fucking wow. not. Yeah, that's wow. a in eighty-four. Oh, huge wow. budget for the eighties. Um, there's a lot of controversy about the funding, and it went way over budget. It was supposed to be closer to like. Well, it was originally supposed to be, I think, like 15 million and then snowballed into the 40 millions and ended up being almost 60 million. So um, and while it did OK, you know, did fine critically, it got uh, a couple of Golden Globe nominations for Best Director and Best Film and got a couple Oscar nominations for Art Direction and Film Editing. Uh, but it tanked at the box office. It only made twenty five point nine million dollars, which, you know, is a lot of money. But when you spent fifty eight million to make it, you've you've pissed everybody off i believe one of the studios involved in it too basically went under because they lost too much money making this um yeah so it's a bit of a production nightmare which we can talk about more later it it was kind of crazy to read about it sounded like this was definitely a film from hell behind the (laughs) scenes and that budget seems even seems even crazier when you realize that originally they were supposed to spend even more um, or they had wanted to spend more too. I just don't see where it all went. I think a lot of <laughs> it probably went into uh, some of the cast. You know, and also there, yeah. it, some of it went into people who ended up getting hired and aren't in the movie. Because um, this movie took five years to make. I think there were 30 or 40 scripts written for it. Um, so it kept getting like, remade and revised and uh yeah so i i I think a lot of the money went into things that weren't even in the movie because of how the movie was made (laughs) Mm -hmm. so uh i i'm gonna pop over and talk about a quick summary of the movie before we get into the substance of our show that's it Um, uh adam if you want to talk about the movie that was made (laughs) <laughs> yeah, here's the movie that uh, we watched. Um, so this film is set in Harlem and the Roaring Twenties and Early Depression when Prohibition and Segregation were in full force. Uh, the film follows the intersecting lives of performers, mobsters, and businessmen surrounding the iconic Cotton Club. Dixie Dwyer is a rising white jazz cornet player who finds himself the accidental piano man for brutal mobster the Dutchman. He falls in love with Dutch's mistress, socialite Vera Cicero, becomes a Hollywood superstar, loses his brother to mob violence, and finally rides off on a train car with Farah by his side. Uh, But the movie also features a secondary protagonist, Sandman Williams, who is a black tap dancer seeking to make it big at the Cotton Club with his brother. He falls in love with Lila Rose, a mixed-race performer who struggles living a life uh, between white and black society. After having a falling out with his brother, the two reunite and Sandman and Lila get married. Uh, So where in this uh, gobbledygook of plot is our sweet boy Nicolas Cage? Um, He is killing kids and dying in a phone booth. What a life. I'm about to say, you can describe it very generously when you say uh, he loses his brother to mob violence, when for a good yeah. portion of the film, he is the mob violence. He is... You can be lost in mob violence. I mean, by the time he gets killed by mob violence, his brother doesn't really care about him much anyway. Uh, I don't recall having or hearing a single reaction uh from Dixie oh, yeah. about his brother dying. That's true. He doesn't even mention it. There's no I mean, like, he, he, funeral for him. He kind of knew it was coming, uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, is that where we want to start actually is talking about our boy Nick? Because he may not have been in the movie a lot, but I feel like I actually have a lot to say about about Nick in this one. Say, let's lead with Nick for once. We always save yeah. him for yeah. last. Let's, let's get our dessert early. So I'm curious... Uh, before we talk about like his character or or all that, how did you guys feel his performance was in this? Because I feel like we're gonna have differing views here. It was fine, um, to the extent like 
Nicolas Cage was tasked with playing a white mobster in a very racist part and city in U.S. history, uh, and, like, being just an asshole, he did that fine. I wasn't blown away with it. I thought he was totally, it was a totally acceptable performance from an acting perspective. I think, well, I mean, there was, a like, two different chunks, almost, like, two different roles that he played. Mm-hmm. He played Vinny before uh, Dixie hit it big, and then Vinny after Vinny became a monster. Monster. A mobster. And a monster. Same thing. <laughs> some would say. Uh, I, I think his acting as little brother Vinny was a little bit over the top, where he's, like, jumping up on the stage and throwing pennies at, at people at the Cotton Club. Um, I thought that was a little bit over the top, but as the mobster, I thought he was great. He had the perfect amount of unhinged for some guy who pissed off the wrong guy and is also trying to become the biggest guy himself. Um, so I think his, his caginess in kind of the second half of the role, um, felt pretty good in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be the gonna most, differ? yeah, I'm going to be the most negative here and say, I think he shouldn't have been cast for the part at all. I wouldn't say it was like so bad a performance that like, you know, it took you out of the movie or was like stand out the worst or anything like that. I just really don't think Nicolas Cage, he doesn't sell me as a twenties, thirties era gangster at all. And I was thinking about this as you guys were talking too. I don't know if it's that he doesn't realistically portray it in terms of like none of us know any mobsters from the 20s right so who can say what's realistic or not but for me if you compare him to all the other actors playing similar roles in that movie or even in other you know mobster flicks he just doesn't seem to fit into that puzzle like he seemed he the whole time it felt like a guy playing a mobster not a mobster on screen like even comparing him to his brother in that movie comparing him to Dixie Dixie seemed much more like a classic mobster than Nick did but I mean to your point Adam when it gets to to the end when uh when uh Vincent gets a little more unhinged that is more of you know Nick's wheelhouse but even then I mean the whole time I'm just like oh he's just some dumb twerp like it just doesn't even he just doesn't really gel with the rest of the cast i I don't think but that's the thing that is he is some random kid some punk who gets himself a job in the mob and then just finds out oh i'm real good at killing people like he isn't a classy guy he isn't the front man in the business suit he's like this low-level street enforcer um and i can kind of see your point like if you line everybody up i think as of all the mobsters i think uh nicholas cage sticks out like a sore thumb but at the same time i think he brought a lot to the role and like in the scene where he commands the the shooting that kills a bunch of kids um he played that scene pretty straight and he didn't seem he didn't take me out of that scene but he also doesn't talk in that scene. I, I, I think another thing, too, which this will mean nothing to you, Adam, but maybe Milo can either back me up or, or knock me down on this, is I think like a really easy comparison would be Vincent and Sonny from The Godfather. Like very similar characters who have kind of the same like impetuousness and like love of violence and like they're just kind of dumbasses that are in the business because of their family kind of thing. And... Like, I don't buy Nicolas Cage as the, the like, low-level grunt guy. Like, I, I get what you mean, Adam, in terms of, like, comparing him to some of the other characters in the movie maybe isn't fair because he isn't the, like, classy... He's not at the high level. He's not even close to being a Don. He's a grunt. But I don't even buy him as as a mafia grunt kind of thing. Um, yeah, he just, didn't, he just didn't do it for me. I mean, he wasn't the worst performance ever, but... I uh, I want to go into this and a couple other things a bit more when we uh, near the end here because uh, 
during this movie, I started doing a lot of stuff, and most of the characters in this movie, um, Nicolas Cage's character included, were all very closely or, well, some closely, some loosely, and some were just actual depictions of real-life mobsters uh, in and around Harlem during this time. Um, and I, I do want to sort of cover uh, Nicolas Cage's uh, role in that in depicting Vincent Dwyer, who is in real life known as Mad Dog Cole. But first, we should probably address uh, literally any of the rest of the elephants in the room. Um, and we have kind of a stacked cast here. Uh, in our leads, we have Richard Greer as uh, uh, Nicolas Cage's brother and the lead of the film, Dixie Dwyer. Co-lead, we have Gregory Hines as Sandman. And then as our two love interests, we have Diane Lane as Vera and uh, Lynette McNee, or McKee as uh, Lila. And then Bob Hoskins and uh, James Ramar as Oni and Dutch, respectively, sort of like the two main rival mobsters for the whole film. And uh, honestly, there was not a. Arguably, with maybe Sam and Sam's argument for Nicolas Cage. There wasn't really a bad performance from any of these cast members. Like, everyone gave a pretty top-notch performance. And I feel like any of the fault in this film was maybe just, like, an average script. Um, but, like, these people were carrying it. And I didn't think there was a single really weak link. Yeah, I agree for the most part. I think, for me, Nicolas Cage was the worst but he also you know he isn't in the movie that much and um i will say though diane diane lane um who we've seen before because she was patty in rumblefish um and she was also in oh, both okay. both rumblefish and uh uh what's that other one that coppola directed at the same time um uh, Outsiders. Outsiders. Thank you. She's in both of those, so she's just in Coppola film after Coppola film for a bit. She was nominated for a Golden Raspberry for Worst Supporting Actress from this movie, which I think was like really? totally unfair. Like, I didn't think her performance was very bad at all. I think maybe she had her character had some of the worst like lines of dialogue. Maybe, um, I think some of the like maybe corniest lines in the movie come from her, but I don't think like. I, I thought her performance was fine. I was actually kind of surprised by that because I agree with you, Milo, that overall the cast's performance is pretty great. Yeah, I'm surprised that someone thought she was the worst supporting actress of the year. I mean, that, that yeah, that wasn't bad. There were a couple lines from her character that weren't great, but nothing like too shocking or, or horrible. I did want to talk about... Um what's his name james renor the guy that played uh dutch schultz um because i it was bothering me the first time i was watching it because i recognized from him from something and i couldn't believe what it was which he plays uh dexter's dad in um dexter the oh. you know serial killer tv show or whatever um and it just like it he totally does yeah 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 it was so weird seeing him that much younger and I thought his character was really weird too because I, I initially I thought of him the same way of Nicolas Cage of like I don't really buy him as a mobster but I think that's part of uh, I think that's part of the point and part of how he played him is that a lot of the other people weren't taking Dutch very seriously uh, either um, right because he's kind of a dumbass and and in over his head and um, and so I think it was actually really good performance on uh renor's part there well i mean going back to it in the context of the movie um i think that uh i mean if you look at dutch's character is the same as nicholas cage's character in the sense that he's just he had made it to that next level yeah. that uh nicholas cage was aspiring to get to 
where he was just the former grunt man on the ground uh, working for Bob Hoskins. And then after a while, he is, has just earned is enough. Is that true? Money. Yeah, it's addressed in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, but. yeah. He, they say like he was running trucks for uh, Oni Maddens. So he was, oh, yeah. he was, you know, one of the guys on the mattresses at first until he became his own. I gotcha. But wait, but Oni Mad, like Oni Madden, I would, I think of his character... I don't think of him as a mobster. Oh, he was. He totally he can, was. He goes to jail at the end of the movie, and they basically like are going to be putting on a song and dance for him because he may as well own the jail. <laughs> also, Adam, he's a real-life mobster. He's the one that was a direct portrayal. Really? Interesting. Interesting. I guess he did have... I, I guess love how Adam have, gets uh, fooled by the white-collar Vinny... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> He did have Vinny killed. Yeah. <laughs> he did he did have a another guy fucking machine gunned in a phone booth. No, you're right. My bad on I that. I mean one. I mean I will say and sort of like what Milo was talking about, is he, he is sort of in the movie we see sort of the height of mobsterdom. Like he's the the closest to you know, he's the godfather of the film, right? And even right. Dutch who like arguably has his own family because he's got his own gang. Um He's still clearly like in the power dynamic between the two of them or the power dynamic between the other gangs. Dutch is still definitely below uh, Madden the whole time, which is a lot of the conflict between the two of them. Mm -hmm. I I love Bob Hoskins in that role. Oh, he was so Um, good. Yeah, I've seen I haven't seen Bob Hoskins in a lot. I've seen him in Roger Rabbit and part of the mario movie so seeing him in this movie was like <laughs> it, was, it was like it was amazing he did a great job he really was an a-class actor he really and was his his interaction with frenchie who was played <laughs> okay. by Harmon monster himself it was amazing the uh those two had so much chemistry on screen and it's really what i i kind of going back through all these movies i love when i see an actor just like melt into their role so completely and those two just lived in that in those roles it was amazing that fucking pocket watch scene was so good oh so good. that's stand out the best part of the movie that's yeah yeah for sure yeah it was amazing yeah the, um, the if, two of them are so good if we're gonna wrap up talking about the the actors here um lawrence fishburne this is our second time yeah i want to talk about him him he's another sort of uh repeat coppola offender um where he just keeps coming back for like these little bit roles but like a lot of them they're in this movie he's really good he had one of the best individual lines um where he's like uh He's talking to Sandman, uh, Gregory Hines' character, and he's like, you, you go out and dance. This is my club. And it's like, I'm a pimp, I'm a thief, and I'm a murderer. That's my dance. And it's like, damn. I think yeah. it's great. Yeah, I, it, it blew my mind again because, yeah, like you said, he was in uh, Rumblefish too, And in both movies, criminally underutilized. Um, oh, I, yeah. I think even more in this one because at least in Rumblefish, it really was a character who just kind of didn't matter but in this movie he's like on screen like two times before he ever speaks and we really have no idea who he is other than he's hanging out with some of the other main characters and then he's got that line that you just mentioned milo and then he you know he's a side character but then he's in the movie like he's basically like the head of like the black gang in harlem Mm -hmm. which is Um, his character he portrays was a dead-ass betrayal of a guy uh bumpy johnson who was one of the major crime lords in prohibition harlem and yeah it it just feels like i I just wish the character had been used a little more than he was i mean when he was on screen he was great fishburn gave a great performance and like it's clear from his later stuff how great of an actor he is that i mean to be the 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 energy he brought oh (laughs) go ahead milo (laughs) i was gonna say to be fair I would also underutilize any actor who was addressing themselves as Larry Fishborn. Uh, I don't know when he makes that change, but I'm so glad he does. 
That's amazing. Get out here, Larry. Larry Fishborn. Uh, yeah, you just he, uh, his inner seriously. His energy in this role was halfway between Morpheus and <laughs> Jules from Pulp Fiction. Like he he had that the Morpheus sage vibe, but he also had this badass, you know, Jules Winfeld like give no shits gangster kind of aesthetic and it worked really well um you're right super under underutilized adam you just brought up something i wanted to talk about when you brought up pulp fiction because one thing i didn't really understand and this is maybe me just being dumb is sort of the relationship between dixie dutch and vera and it reminded me of Pulp Fiction a whole bunch where, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, he takes the mobster's wife out for a date. And, like, everybody knows, like, that they're attracted. Like, in this case, everyone knows Dixie and Vera are into each other. Most people know they're sleeping with each other. But Dutch, like, wants him to wants them to hang out because he wants to feel like he's cucking Dixie, I guess. Like, I just really don't understand the dynamic that much. At least. So weird. It's like. Hey, I'm going to pay you $300 a week to be my mistress's best friend. It's yeah, just yeah, pretty bizarre. Much. Yeah, um, I, I think Dutch was just stupid. I believe it. Uh, I think he didn't... Maybe it was... I think it was more like he's such a dangerous guy that nobody thought Dixie would cross the line. But I think deep down, part of Dutch wanted to feel jealousy because he lives off of hate. That's kind of his, you know, you never really see Dutch happy mm-hmm. um, unless he's screaming a racial slur. Um, oh, that's one thing I was going to say. You get every kind of slur imaginable. We get slurs against black people and Jews, Irish, Italians. Italians. Yeah. We get Asian slurs, and there's not a single Asian person in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and they still get the slur in there. Oh, you're getting real creative with that one, buddy. If you think uh, you're not going to be insulted, don't worry. They'll weasel it in. Yeah, it's amazing. But uh, uh, but yeah, back to Dutch. There, I think that's a a, a good point. It just was so so weird to me because it was basically like felt like he's paying dixie to sleep with the you know sleep with his girlfriend and mm-hmm. should have known that was going on but maybe you're right and he really was that dumb and and didn't yeah. realize or or wanted to be the victim in that situation there i i would say dixie and vera's relationship is so weird um yeah it because they like you know they they go back and forth and bicker and then they're lovey-dovey and then he's Dixie gets mad because you know he's like my freedom your freedom we should be free together so I'm gonna beat you up on a dance floor and people are gonna think it's a new dance and then they go fuck and it's like are you why do we have to why does every movie we watch except for like one have to include oh you have to beat a woman before she really loves you like yeah. He was just like throwing her on the ground and like jerking her around. Uh, it was very uncomfortable. It was incredibly and uncomfortable. And then watching like the other couples in the background on that scene start to slowly like playfully slap at each other. And it's like, oh, this yeah. is the hot new craze, the domestic abuse. Yeah. It's like, oh, what are we watching? Where are we at? I, uh. Yeah, I think maybe. But even with. The- yeah, I was gonna say I think maybe some of the the hate that Diane Lane gets is more about how they just don't work as a as a main couple. Well, and you can contrast them to the other romance too between uh, Sandman and Lila. Yeah, and which feels so much more organic and like even if it's mm-hmm. rough in parts, like, um, and like we haven't really talked about them too much, but I mean honestly. To a large extent, I think they carry this film. I'm about to say they have some just incredible performances, and like 
I'm a sucker for a good song and dance number. It's why I love the best of times, obviously. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but no, like they just on screen, they just always have such good chemistry and like it, the kind of, I guess, two part scene of their first date where they're at like the, what looks like a church on an off day and they're like just performing and he's like trying to win her over with a song and then they go to the tap dance club and it's just mm-hmm. they're very the charming professors. yeah and it's i don't know i just think they look felt so much better and had mm-hmm. a way better dynamic and were more fun to watch really as a couple yeah, I, I would agree. I wish they. Oh, oh go ahead, Adam. Uh, I I really wish that they had a song from Lila about. Um, I, what is his name? I forgot it. Sandman. I really wish they had a song from Lila to Sandman, because I feel like that would have like been a really good way to to glue that relationship together. But otherwise, it was. I think it was really good, and the hoofer scene in the tap dancing club was my second favorite scene in the movie behind the pocket watch. It was just beautiful. It was a really well choreographed tap dance scene. Uh, felt super rooted and uh, they looked like they were having a fun and good time. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would agree with everything. I think um, one thing I find dissatisfying though, is I feel like their plot lines uh, when they try to, when the movie tries to connect them to the other characters, uh, I don't think it works as well in terms of it feels like the connections are sort of artificial. Like Sandman yeah. and Dixie are supposed to be friends, and we see them interacting at the beginning, and then Sandman is the one who ends up saving Dixie from Dutch at the end, like during one of his numbers when uh, Dutch pulls a gun on Dixie. Sandman, yeah. you know, steps over and kicks the gun out of Dutch's hands. Um, but that's like basically the only time the characters interact. Like we get a thing at the beginning to at least establish that they're they're friends, and then they don't interact the rest of the movie until Sandman saves his life. And you know maybe that's intentional yeah. when you've got a friendship between a white character and a black character in this time period. But it just felt like oh here's a reminder that you know all these characters know each other or their lives at least intersect, and it just felt kind of like forced. Whereas it really was like yeah totally separate plot lines just going on perpendicular to each other to that extent i think you could probably safely classify this movie almost as an anthology um just the way how it's like paced and edited um with sort of like time jumps um and we've effectively got three separate plot lines going at all times we've got uh the performers which is divided between uh dixie um and the music uh and uh oh fuck um what's her name uh and vera you've got uh the dancers uh with sandman lila and sandman's brother uh clay and then you've got this whole mob side to it uh that touches on the other two and sort of acts as like the main bridge um but you've got all these different little stories and snippets that feels like you could cut this movie into like five or six different short films um and that you would still have a pretty cohesive plot i you you could definitely do that but i it didn't feel like an anthology to me because it was, Oh, what, oh Sam, Sam. Well, I was going to say my response to that was, yeah, you could call this an anthology. If you ignore the definition of anthology. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was going to say, it's a it, does, of, it, it's it felt like a bunch of shorts. In okay. This here's movie. maybe, maybe this is, so here's how I'm, as you were describing this, here's what I'm thinking. Cause what it reminds me of right now, I'm in the middle of reading the first uh, Witcher novel. And Sapowski writes his novel as if he's writing short stories because that's what he did. The first two books are just short story collections. And his novel is essentially like every chapter might as well be a short story because he writes it in a very similar way to this movie in terms of like the time jumps are sort of random. Like sometimes it'll be 
a brief amount of time. Sometimes there'll be a huge amount of time. Like POVs will be from totally random characters and you have no idea why we give a shit about this character until they intersect with another character. Uh, it feels like, you know, parallel stories rather than a tight novel structure. Um, and I think that's what this movie is doing. However, both of them, I wouldn't say are an anthology because there is, you know, an underlying thing happening and like, you have to sort of follow it from A to Z. You can't just kind of like pick up at a random point. Like there's no point in this movie that has absolutely nothing to do with any other point in this movie. Sometimes it feels like that. And that might be the fault of this movie. That's maybe my one of my major problems with it but i wouldn't say it's an anthology i think it's just maybe weird pacing and and maybe too many plots going on at once and i think now would be the greatest time to bring up why there was weird pacing and editing in this movie because this thing was a production fucking nightmare uh on like every level (laughs) Uh, Sam, if you want to sort of dive us into this. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's a bit of a mess. So the movie, you know, took over five years to make. The original um, sort of producer, and then he had to step into a director role because his partner, who was supposed to direct it, bowed out because it was going really poorly, is Robert Evans. So Robert Evans uh, seems like a wild character. I think even early into production, he was getting... He had... um, some criminal charges for something about uh, cocaine. Um, So he's a wild guy, and the funding was uh, kind of a disaster. There's some, uh, like, Saudi arms dealer that uh, funded a huge portion of Uh, this. Um, uh. Someone on, uh, I think it was Robert Evans' girlfriend or ex-girlfriend probably got another producer in this movie assassinated. Oh, Um, Yeah. what (laughs) yeah because apparently he was dating like she was like an actual mobster or something and or gangster or whatever you were you're called in 1984 and uh yeah she got someone another a different producer in this movie assassinated um someone else hired mobsters to like intimidate uh evans to get him off of the movie and to like basically get him to sell all his rights for the movie Sylvester Stallone was originally going to be the lead until it was found out that Robert Evans was fucking his girlfriend. And I just want to take a moment to appreciate what this fucking movie would have looked like if instead of Richard Greer or Gear, we had uh, fucking Sylvester Stallone as Dixie Dwyer. Two other big names that were one and Stallone was hired like he was going to play Dixie. But even before him, Al Pacino was going to play Dixie. And after Stallone, Harrison Ford was going to play Dixie. I mean, we had three huge, very different actors all hired to play uh, Dixie, and none of them ended up in the end. But that would have been a wild movie. It's really weird to think about, too, when you just, I guess, to speak to the scattered production and how all over the place the screenplay was, because none of those are even remotely similar actors and like what you think of for their performances of the four people discussed none of those you would picture in the same room together except for the fact that they were actors in the 80s um yeah and when coppola signed on so they hired coppola and he did not want to do the movie but uh he was broke some another movie he financed himself and it flopped and his company was about to go bankrupt so he kind of had to agree to do it and like he you know he blames the over budgeting on evans because he says by the time he took over they'd already spent like 15 million dollars and all this like over the top stuff that adds to the huge budget was already set in stone but most people think it was sort of coppola's fault and people got like hired and fired like within weeks uh on the set of this movie it was it's kind of a disaster. I think it's frankly amazing how good the movie turned out considering how bad it started and all the issues that popped up even once you had Coppola on board that I'm surprised it, was it turned into a workable movie. Somehow. Yeah. yeah. 
I would not have known that it was a disaster. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild. But, and um, I do have to wonder how much of that, like, the disaster part of the production would be visible and sort of um, more apparent in this original cut, which none of us actually watched. And so right. I would love to, at some point, go back and watch that and see just how... Because from the sounds of it, these are two almost entirely different films because if you take out a lot of this other stuff like you're massively changing the overall tone and it sounds like mm-hmm. the cuts and edits were probably sloppier before the remaster uh the encore edition as it were um yeah i wonder i will say at least the the version we watched and i mean the the original did get an oscar nod for editing but i think um overall the editing was pretty superb i mean we like like you said this version you know had basically every song and dance number a lot of those were cut uh or edited down in the original but in this one it i thought the editing was really good like the scene in particular i'm thinking of which is great cinematography and editing is when dutch finally gets murdered and they flash back and forth between the blast of the machine gun and the sound of i think it's sandman tap dancing or somebody tap yeah, dancing. that was awesome um that was really good and the the very end of the movie when they're at the train station and they they mm-hmm. have the dancers on stage at the cotton club like dressed as like train station employees doing a dance number but then they also show up at the train station as all the main characters are you know moving on to whatever um yeah i guess symbolically carrying the cotton club with them even as they leave yeah i wondered why it was done oh, Milo. it was uh oh, so sweet it was very weird at first because at first you're like like what are these people doing in the train station before you get that like they're not really there and it's just the visual element but uh yeah that the editing in that part was was super well done too i mean it's definitely a you know a well-made movie i mean i think it's like like rumblefish too when you see you know a more auteur director versus something more kind of like standard boilerplate like fast times or valley girl um Mm -hmm. you can notice a difference whether you you like the movies more or not i think it's totally a you know personal opinion but you can definitely see more craft in like this and rumblefish versus i think valley girl or fast times yeah uh i i do want to say with that last scene with the train station which was really good, and it was, you know, surrealistic, surreal. It was real surreal. Um, I thought it was an embodiment of my favorite quote from the movie that Dixie said toward the beginning. Um, and he pointed out that this ain't real life. It's, it's jazz. jazz. Such a it's line. jazz. It's jazz all the way down. And when you're going through that train station and you see a, a little girl tap dancing and then you turn back around and you're looking under the cotton club, baby, this ain't real life. It's jazz. Uh, I love that line. Katie, while we were watching it, uh, audibly groaned and was incredibly I'm frustrated. I'm glad I'm not the only one whose Kate audibly hated that line. It was such a pretentious I... <laughs> moment, but I did. I mean, it's accurate, but in the moment when you hear it, it's kind. Of, it is a little groan-inducing. Yeah, I I groaned, but I was like pounding the table. It made me so happy. It was fucking hilarious. And it, it's such a weird thing, Richard Gere. He's such a dreamboat, and when he just delivers this. <laughs> dog shit line <laughs> it's jazz <laughs> it was amazing so good I kind of want to go back to another little thing from I guess mentioned earlier that this movie is I guess you could arguably call it a loose biography of the location the cotton club um, which yeah. we've sort of mentioned a few times this is a this was a real place for those not familiar with uh, Harlem, um, and yeah, it was incredibly important and influential for a very long time, um, and it lasted uh, for decades and was a huge part of um, 
it's largely shown as like mob influence, but like this is a big part of black culture for uh, a lot of Harlem, New York. You have a ton of the biggest stars of the era sort of, if not debuting, getting like a big start or like at least coming to it and performing here and like homage. An important thing to note about the Cotton Club, though, at least uh, at the time period where the movie starts, though, is that all the performers are black, but the audience is only white because they don't let black people into the building except to perform, (laughs) Um, which it's one of those things where you just like, it's like, you don't understand, I don't understand how racism as an institution doesn't just fall apart on itself because it's like, the the institution that is recognizing black excellence refuses to let black people into the building to partake in their own you know talent and culture and it's just like yeah it's insane it's insane that that was the norm and that some people still think that way and it's uh it's mind-boggling i mean even the name the cotton club it's i mean it's in the name dude it it says right yeah Dog whistle is a little generous there, but um, yeah, but no, um, it's a fairly, from what I've seen, fairly sort of accurate depiction of what it was like to be at the Cotton Club at the time right before leading out of the Roaring Twenties and into the Great Depression, um, and like it plays it somewhat loose with uh the um with the artists and some of those figures uh for instance uh mr dwyer our good boy richard gear um he's loosely based on an actor by the name of george raft uh you could argue uh that um sandman is sort of an amalgamation of a couple of prominent performers from the Cotton Club, same for uh, Lisa. Uh, But then you have just full-on depictions of some of the major mobsters in the era. Uh, Dutch Schultz. But even the... Oh, Oni Even the performers. Yeah. Like uh, Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington. Um... I wanted to talk about uh, Lila's character some more because uh, we get a scene with her and Sandman where she's basically admitting to him that she, you know, passes herself off as white in certain circles. And she admits that, like, the times where he's wondering where she's at, uh, she's with probably some white lawyer um, living the secret life as a white woman, Um, which... um, the movie, I think it was, came out last year, the movie Passing on Netflix. It was about the uh, so exactly the same dynamic, a black woman you know, posing as a white woman in the same time period and stuff. Um, and yeah, it was just really interesting too because, she, you know, she's... I, I, I was hoping it was going to get brought up in the movie because when her character first came on screen, I thought she was white. Um, and... There's a whole thing of, you know, casting lighter-skinned women of color as your romantic leads versus darker-skinned women of color. Um, but clearly, in this case, it was intentional because that was, you know, part of the character and part of her, her storyline um, that she could pass. And that's it. The scene you're talking about where she and Sandman have this conversation is... Um, honestly probably one of the best scenes in the film easily um and like you totally like i totally understand uh what sandman's going for but she also has this great line um where she's talking about it's like i'm not black i'm not white i'm human and i love and i love that i can be that and then he's like yeah i can't even go into the clubs to watch you perform and it's yeah. like you're leaving us out here because you get to pass. And it's as a podcast starring three uh, <laughs> white watch, men. Watch yourself down yeah. <laughs> I, as as a podcast starring three white men, um, we don't 
exactly get to, or we probably shouldn't comment too much um, beyond the fact that I think it was really cool that this film addressed it, and I would love to hear someone who actually deserves to have a voice in this subject talk about it more, but I just thought it was like, if nothing else, it was an exceptionally well done scene and probably one of the better ones in the film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd agree. And um, I think trying to make some pretty progressive points for a film in, in 1984 as well. Um, yeah, I wish kind of that dynamic had gotten more screen time because it really kind of comes up in that scene and, you know, a couple other scenes where they're like visiting each other at the clubs and stuff. But yeah but i really recommend passing if uh you haven't seen it is very good and the entire movie is about those kind of themes and handled even better than this movie and uh, it doesn't yeah. have a minute of nicholas cage footage in it so uh, i'm afraid this will be the last time <laughs> we talk about passing on the podcast probably. i'm sorry to say because i'm gonna find that. a way to bring it up every episode from now on Somehow. We have to discuss good movies on here occasionally, somehow. Um, We're working on it. Yeah. Well, any last big topics you guys wanted to broach here? Mm, we got to see Naked Cage. We, we did see... Uh, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Not really. I went, we I got mean, to see we, Topless Cage. We we got to see Nicholas Cage have sex with his the... wife while his brother and mother were in the room next door. I I will say Didn't I think care that yeah. we did get to see Nicholas Cage having sex how he always does, which is uh make you know, making weird grunting noises while banging his fist on a wall and not moving <laughs> while inside of his wife. I'm pretty sure yeah. that's how he does it. And also looking straight ahead and screaming. I do want to ask, have now that we bring this up, have we had a Nicolas Cage film where he had like a significant speaking role where he hasn't had sex yet? Or has he fucked in every single movie we've seen so far? Well, do you mean a sex scene or just his character for sure had sex in the movie? I, I was going to say sex scene because like in Racing with the sex? Moon, he doesn't. But he, the fact that he had sex is like a oh, third right. of the plot of that film. Sure, sure. I think that counts as him not having a sex scene, though. I uh, think the sex scene thing is was a bigger, was a bigger deal. Yeah. The majority of the movies we've watched starring Nicolas Cage have included a sex scene with him. I mean, he just he just gets tail. I don't know. That's just what it mm -hmm. comes down to, I guess. Um, so actually before we get, well, no, no, let, let's do our official rating of Cotton Club and then I have another question for you. But so on our official rating system, Milo, why don't you start us off? What would you give, uh, the Cotton Club? Um, as a dedicated mob movie and period piece with a cast that is frankly as stacked as this one is, I'd say it is better than you'd think, but worse than you hope. This is not, a Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather. This is Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. There's a reason one of these you haven't heard of before. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say mm, worse than you'd think, better than you'd hoped. Because I went into this one, kind of same vibe as Milo, but I went into this one with... Uh, now I can't even remember my own ranking. Did I say better than I'd think and worse than I hoped? Opposite, uh, but, you know. No, 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 no. I said worse worse than you'd think, better than you'd hope. I thought that this was going to be like a really, really, really good Coppola movie. And it wasn't a really, really, really good Coppola movie. But it was still pretty dang good. So um, worse I, than you think, better than you hope. I'm going to so. make sure everyone's so confused by a rating system. Because I'm going to agree with Milo and say that it's... Better than you think, worse than you hope. <laughs> Try to remember who said what. Uh, but I, I completely agree with you, Milo. I think, you know, for the same reason of, like, it's good. Uh, it's not The Godfather. I, you know, kind of hoped it was going to be a little better. But, yeah, considering everything going on, it's it's probably a better movie than you think it is. So, 
For what it's worth, like The Godfather, this movie also includes an uncomfortable scene with a horse. I was wondering if that was an allusion to The Godfather. It had to be, right? Like, immediately after Nicolas Cage's character gets shot, we have the weirdest fucking picture of a horse just staring dead ass straight forward. All, all I all I was thinking was Bob Hoskins drunk doodling <laughs> on set. I can believe that too, but horse head. Yeah, okay. it's got to yeah, be yeah. a Godfather reference. I, I, I hope it is, or I don't understand what was going on. Um, there. You know what? Uh, excuse me while I update IMDb's trivia page to make sure that it's included because I did not see it in there. I don't care if it's wrong. Uh, it is officially. A reference oh, that, to the Godfather. That does remind me of a trivia fun fact I wanted to tell you guys slash the audience about this movie. Uh, I, was, I was doing some light Nicolas Cage uh, Googling, and um, apparently at the beginning of his career, so literally the era we're talking about right now, he briefly wanted to be a method actor, and his plans of method acting ended with his role in the Cotton Club because he apparently violently smashed an RC car of some street vendor as he was preparing for the role of Vincent for this movie. And <laughs> that's when he stopped doing method acting. <laughs> he smashed, he smashed an RC car to be like a 1920s gangster. Apparently that's what he thinks gangsters do. I guess that's my boy. It wasn't gunning down the children that made him stop. No, I mean, yeah, I guess he could have taken the method acting to an even more extreme, but yeah, I thought mm. that, I thought that was hilarious. But um, the thing I wanted to ask you guys, since we've given our Cotton Club ranking, I I have my list of everything we've we've watched so far ranked, written out. But I'm just curious for you guys, right now, what would be your top three movies we've watched so far? Oh shit! All right. Uh. I think this probably is in there. Um, of these so far, I would probably go Cotton Club, Racing with the Moon, and Valley Girl, which I realize... I know, I know. I'm I mean, the I odd one out. A, we're picking from a small list of movies, so I, I'm confident Valley Girl won't stay in your top three for long. But... No, it won't. Um... But yeah, no. I it's it's fair. Uh, I'd probably say Rumblefish, Racing with the Moon. Oh. God, it might be Valley Girl as well. You piece of shit. In turn, if we're if if I'm knocking out Fast Times at Richmond High to have it more cage. Wait, focused, you think Valley Girl is a better movie than The Cotton Club? No. I well, think it's then it a movie like... I like more. <laughs> okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. With with an emphasis on it on Nicolas Cage, I just get, here's here's an issue. I didn't think much about it when I watched Valley Girl, and listening to our episode, I feel bad because I called Nicolas Cage ugly in it. I feel really bad about that because all I can think of now is Nicolas Cage's obsessed face like staring at the door like waiting for what's her face to open the door that image is that passion is burned into my brain and I don't know why it left an impact Sam if you're gonna it tell did. me Valley Girl did. did not impact you viscerally on a physical or spiritual level then you're lying to us and our audience uh, it didn't. that movie marinated my noodle I want to see Nicolas Cage acting like a weirdo. I can watch any of the 109 movies he's in. So I'd rather pick one of the more entertaining ones. Um, I will say, Adam, your list was almost the perfect list, a.k.a. my list, which is Rumblefish is number one so far, Racing with the Moon, and Cotton Club, I think, comes in as number number three. But I don't know what this Valley Girl nonsense is. We need to get that out of here. I Honestly, oh, it... Do you not remember Nicolas Cage in costume? I do. That I do. That juice was worth the squeeze of the rest of that movie. <laughs> well, Sam, I think uh, if you want us to get Valley Girl out of our top list, 
you either have an incredibly good or an incredibly awful chance. Because next episode, we're watching a film whose brief uh, descriptions I've seen are uh, fascinating. As we see Birdie. Yeah, I'm actually... This is maybe the one I'm most excited for so far, based solely off the trailer I watched right after watching The Cotton Club. This movie looks insane, and I think it'll legitimately either be really, really good or be really, really bad, but it'll probably be entertaining either way. And we get a lot of Nicolas Cage again. He's back in a starring role, or at least co-starring role. I'm not sure which. I'm ready for it. I know nothing about this movie. Uh, I've never heard of it before. I no. no idea what I'm in for. Well, we'll just have to find out uh, next episode as we plunge, or I should say soar to new heights. <laughs> as we deep sea dive to new depths of cinema. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to another episode of Coppola Idiots. Uh, if you did enjoy the show, uh, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Pocket Cast. And as always, you can reach out to the show at coppolaidiots at gmail.com. That's C-O-P-P-O-L-A-I-D-I-O-T-S at gmail.com. And join us in two weeks when we review Birdie. Bye.